the resurrection of Jesus Christ was an event of cosmic significance. When Jesus rose from the dead, as He promised that He would, shockwaves of hope reverberated through the corridors of time, past, present, and future. Shockwaves of hope also pulsated from Golgotha's hill to the furthest reaches of the physical universe. From the dawn of human history, hope was always present in the promises of God. But Jesus' resurrection was a clear-cut realization of God's promises unlike any event before or since. When Jesus crushed death, God's plan to ultimately eliminate death, to glorify His people, and to renew the created order was put on display. Here it is. And here we are. 2,000 years removed, a half a world away, and singing praises to the risen Savior. But let me ask you, is your life oriented to this cosmic event? Does it influence how you think? Does it order how you act? And does Christ's resurrection affect how you suffer? You do suffer. We inhabit a dysfunctional world filled with all sorts of trouble and a good bit of it finds every one of us. And each of us interprets suffering in a way that influences our actions, our attitudes, and our very state of being. So what do you make of a planet? that is aging and groaning with self-destructive earthquakes and mudslides and forest fires and tsunamis and hurricanes and tornadoes and droughts and floods and infestations. What do you make of it? How do you interpret a world history marked by war and genocide and governmental corruption and family breakdown and abuse and murder and theft and exploitation and terrorism? And in your personal life, how do you view the suffering that you experience? The suffering of illness and disease. The suffering of weakness and poverty. Of relational breakdown. And people who wrong you. And dreams that are crushed. Does... God's redemptive plan witnessed in Jesus' resurrection have anything to do with how you see your life in this broken world? We stand over here with all due respect, a Hindu man. And like so many Hindus, as they look at these very same experiences, these very same trials, suffering just as we understand it, this Hindu man believes that all suffering and evil is an illusion. It's really not real. And if we will just learn to meditate and think in a particular way, we can realize that none of it's actually happening. And over here, we stand a secular woman. Nurtured in our environment, in our context, to understand that at least theoretically, the supernatural realm does not exist. 
And so there really is no point in interpreting evil and suffering at all. It just is. And so by one method or another, she tries to deaden the aching groan in her soul that whispers, suffering is empty and meaningless, if not absurd. There is no point, there is no hope. In fact, you are absurd. A cosmic accident with no point. By contrast to these and so many other ways of viewing this world and its suffering, by contrast, the Christian worldview which hinges on Jesus' conquest of death is grounded in reality and hope. The reality, this world is cursed and our suffering is very real. It's not an illusion. It's not a dream. It's actual. But on the other hand, there is hope. God has a plan to glorify His people and lift the curse that is on the universe. There is a future that gives it all meaning. So the followers of Christ know the physical universe is groaning and it is broken and we know people are corrupt and they are weak. That nothing is quite right. And in one sense, we find this all rather exciting in a very strange but real way. It's not that we like the situation. It's not like we rejoice in the suffering that's going on in and of itself. But as we look at this groaning, aching world, as we look within our own souls and sense the yearning and the ache in our bones, we know there is a liberation that is to come. And this changes everything. This hope we find revealed for us throughout Scripture. But I'd like us to turn today to Romans chapter 8. As we find it here in the heart of this 8th chapter, a short passage of Scripture which reveals to us this hope and orders our orientation to suffering and to this life and to the future. Now obviously Romans 8 falls in the middle of a book. And so there's some context that's necessary for us to move into it. Let me just paint the biblical message that leads us to Romans chapter 8 and indeed what Paul emphasizes throughout this book. But first, we must understand that God created the universe in order that it would display the glorious splendor of the Creator for the joy of all to see and to revel in. But God created an Adam and Eve who broke His law. They decided that they would do things their own way, not listen to what their Creator said, but sinned against Him. And the results were tragic and they were cosmic. Adam and Eve died spiritually by being separated from God and the seeds of death were sown in their bodies so that they would die, though they were not created to do so. This would be the result. Physical death. Adam's sin also resulted in the curse of on the physical universe. In Genesis chapter 3, we find there that God curses the ground. and We are thereby to understand that all of the universe is cursed and falls with Adam, is, re- is influenced by his sin. And in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 15, we find a word of hope. 
That God says in the midst of all of this sorrow and disruption that there would be one, a man, who would come to deliver the world from this curse. And the entire Old Testament slowly identifies this man as Jesus of Nazareth, who as God-man came to earth, lived a sinless life, died in the place of sinners as a sacrificial lamb, and rose again in victory over the grave, over sin, over death, over Satan, to give life to His people. Now Paul explains in this letter of Romans that those who trust Christ and His mission to save, those who lock into this story that starts at Genesis 3.15 that God has been working out in Christ, those who come to place their faith and their trust in it are justified. That means that we are declared righteous before God. The God whose laws we break. We are declared righteous. God graciously gives us that standing before Him. Chapter 5 of Romans, chapter 8 as well. And those who place their faith in Christ as Savior are then saved from God's condemnation. Chapter 5 and verse 9, chapter 8 and verse 1. And they are freed from the law of sin and death. It is not that they no longer sin, but the power of sin is broken. And they become then God's adopted children. Chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. And in the end they will be glorified. This is the whole process that God has brought about through the death and the resurrection of Christ. He saves us from our sin, breaking that bondage of sin, but He will bring us ultimately to glorification. We'll talk about that in a moment and what it means, but does any of this mean that we will be delivered from trials and suffering in this life? Yes, indeed say some Bible teachers. That's why Christ came, to deliver us in this life from all trials and difficulty. And if you are suffering, if you get sick, if you have trials, it's because you're not walking faithfully with God because He came to deliver you from all of that. I'd like you to put your eyes, if you will, on Romans 8 and verse 17. Let's see what the Bible says. Romans 8 and verse 17, we are children now of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him. In order that we may also be glorified with Him. The idea of glory here, the end game of our salvation, indicates that the suffering will be something that takes place throughout our life. Provided that we suffer with Him. I think the meaning is here that suffering, in a manner of speaking, is prerequisite to salvation. Now we have to understand in what way. Suffering does not earn salvation for us. And some wrongly believe that and teach that. But suffering does indicate that our faith is genuine. Faith that suffers like Christ is real faith. So we who have genuine faith will suffer as Jesus did. That is, we will suffer in faithful dependence upon God as our Savior and our Sustainer. That we will go to Him in the midst of our suffering and see Him to be a great and glorious God. That we will trust Him and walk with Him as hard as it is 
As much trouble as we may have even in our relationship with Him through the trials we face, we keep coming back to Him as our hope. If you suffer that way, if you suffer in dependence upon God, trusting in His greatness and in in His goodness, we will then ultimately be glorified with Him. It says to us, though it won't be the focus of our time here together, that with what remains, it says to us how you suffer is a strong, strong indication of the genuineness of your salvation. Do I really know the Lord? It depends on what I believe. It depends on what I have trusted. But in a sense, it also depends. The evidence is there in how I suffer. Such faithful suffering is fueled by a grasp of the realities that Paul will now indicate to us. Beginning at verse 18, we see that creation itself groans in anticipation of future glory. And this is significant as we suffer, as we respond to the resurrection of Christ, to know that the creation itself groans in anticipation of future glory. Verse 18 of Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul, in a sense, sets up here before us a balancing scale. And on the one side, he, takes, he places the time period of this age, he calls it this present time, with all of its suffering and trial, and he places on the other side of the scale the age that is to come for believers, when God's people will be glorified. And he said, let's weigh these things. And he decisively concludes when he says, I consider, he's not saying this is just my opinion, I, I think I might be right about this, he's saying decisively, our suffering is lighter in significance than the glory that we will experience in eternity. They're not even comparable, Paul says. Some, maybe who are not familiar with Paul's life, might say, does this guy really know what's going on? Is this kind of an ignoring of the reality of suffering? Let's remember that the Apostle Paul was a man who was whipped with 40 lashes which brought a man right to the edge of death, 40 lashes, five different times. Three other times, in addition, he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned, and under that pile of stone, his persecutors left him for dead. He got up, and he lived, but it wasn't a happy day. One time he spent, if you can imagine, clinging to wreckage from a ship for about a 24-hour period of time in the sea. And you add to this what you know, just what we know about his life. He was hated and maligned and intact and hunted and oppressed. He suffered severe physical ailments. And he says you put it all on a scale and compared to glory, it doesn't even compare. It's this man who says in all earnestness, these trials are light and momentary compared to the glory that awaits us. So let's stop here and ask that question. What does glory mean? 
What glory? This is a reference to the end game of our salvation, to the culmination of the salvation of God's people. When Christ saves us, He destines us for glory. That is, He will transform us so that we are free of all sin, free of all of the effects of sin, so that we are fully able to comprehend God's glory, His splendor, His greatness, and His goodness. Right now we're blinded to that. Because of sin, we are incapable of fully perceiving the glory of God, but one day that will all be gone. And in glory, with sin gone, and with our perception clean, we will be able to revel in the glory of God for all eternity. That's glory. That's our glorification. Now that future prospect revolutionizes how we suffer. Our suffering in this age is fluffy compared to the weighty splendor Christ saved us to experience in eternity. Again, we're not talking about a man who didn't run into suffering. He ended up being executed after all these trials that he endured. But if you believe this, if you believe as Paul did, that the greater weight of glory that is coming it outweighs all of the suffering and the trial of this life, if you believe that, it will affect the way that you see all kinds of trials. Marital struggle and the loss of a job and struggling with a disease and ailment and weakness and facing mistreatment by others and ultimately, of course, persecution. I mean, if I'm taking a long, rugged, dusty, bumpy ride up a mountain trail in a four-wheeler, I can endure the pain knowing on top of the mountain are breathtaking vistas where I will eat a wonderful lunch with friends. I put up with it. It's not easy. It's hard. But I know what's coming. Multiply that almost infinitely. And that is how the coming future, the glorification that is to come, should transform and change the way that we deal with the trials and the difficulties of this life, with the groan and the ache that is within our bones. You know what the problem is? Rather than comparing our trials with glory, we're really good at comparing our trials with the trials of other people. And as we compare ourselves among ourselves, we play the fool. And we miss the whole point. We're like two siblings on that four-wheeler grumping at who is having the better ride when the whole point is where we're headed. He speaks of the glory that is to be revealed to us. We need to stop for just a moment and look at that phrase. This is one of those rare instances where the English language is largely incapable of conveying the meaning of the Greek text. It's not so much if the glory is revealed in us or to us, depending on your translation, but the translation or the, the interpretation of Douglas Moo, I think, can be used here. Rather, it is that the glory reaches out and includes us in its scope. So it's revealed in us, it's revealed to us, it's revealed by us and for us and all of that. It just grabs us. This glory is going to grab us and draw us in. And that glory is greater than any trial that we will suffer and all of them piled together. Now in verses 19-22, through 22, with that thesis staked here, Paul stresses that this period of groaning, aching, anticipatory endurance 
is cosmic in its scope. Verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation here, I think, refers to the physical, non-personal universe. There's lots of reasons for that I won't get into here, but I think that's, it's clear that's what he's saying. The physical, non-personal universe is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, which speaks of the time when we are glorified, when who Christ intends us to be is made fully clear. Why does it matter to creation that believers are revealed as the children of God? Why does the universe care? Because the universe, personified here with eager anticipation, awaits and is connected to what happens to God's people. There's a yearning, aching, craning of its neck in anticipation for this day. For as Paul explains in verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. In hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So when and why was creation subjected to futility? I think this points back to the fall when God cursed the universe in Genesis 3, 17-19. Man was not made for the earth. The earth was made for man. So when Adam sinned, creation was corrupted. Creation is pictured here as being, isn't it? It's almost like it's terribly disappointed. It's unwillingly consigned to this bondage. Creation was designed to reflect the beauty and the perfections of God. But now it's saddled with the curse and it yearns to fulfill its original purpose and it awaits that purpose on the glorification of God's people, who yet at this point are sinful and weak and fallen. But God has a plan. And the earth waits. Creation waits for that day. And so you see at the end of verse 20, the the words, in hope, God subjected the universe to this curse, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. I think that means that God subjected creation to the curse with the intention of ultimately freeing it from this bondage when God's children are glorified and freed from their sin entirely. So in hope, verse 20, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There's the groaning, the aching, the yearning again, the disappointment to be saddled with sin and the curse, wanting to fulfill its full potential to glorify God. It does. The heavens declare the glories of God. This beautiful creation continues to speak of the wonder and the splendor of our Creator, but it's broken. It's not complete. It's not all that it wants to be, and it waits on us. But there's hope here. Did you see that in verse 22? This groaning is like the pains of childbirth. The good news is that this groaning is the sort one hears in the hallways of a maternity ward, not in the hallways of a hospice. 
This is not a death rattle, but labor pains. And here's where our excitement comes from in the groaning of the universe. It's something like trees right now after this long winter. You know they're just poised to break out. They're waiting, they're groaning, they're yearning, and so are we for summer, aren't we? What is true of creation is all the more true of the redeemed. We come today with our groans and our aches and our yearning for what we know should be. Verses 23 to 25. And not only the creation. Do you see his flow of thought? Not just the created order, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. How do we understand that? We who have the first fruits of the Spirit is a reference to people who have been born again. They have been washed clean by the Spirit of God, not to perfection certainly, but they have been cleansed of their sin, delivered from sin and hell. When we trust Christ as Savior, He baptizes us with the Holy Spirit who then dwells in the believer and is a guarantee of our future glorification. So in this age, as we await glorification, the Spirit's presence comforts us in our suffering to remember this, glory awaits. And so we too groan in eager anticipation. Now isn't it true that we're already the children of God? What does he say that someday we will be adopted as God's children? This is an indication again in the Scriptures, which is fairly consistent throughout, of the fact that yes, indeed, we are, but yet not yet. We are already the children of God, but our redemption is not yet complete until our bodies are redeemed. And anybody over at least a particular age in here knows that's not happened yet, and it's not getting better. Our bodies are lagging way behind our spirit as it has been redeemed by Christ. Now, there are people who say of the body, well, it's, it's our earth suit. And I hear this a lot at funerals. I usually just bite my tongue, but I don't have to bite my tongue here today. We're not at a funeral. But a lot of people say, well, it's, I just, they've, they've left their earth suit behind. Like it's so much junk to just be discarded. That is not a biblical view. It's not that our bodies are useless junk. Such a concept indicates that we are redeemed from our bodies. But the Bible teaches that it is our bodies that are redeemed. They are redeemed. They will be resurrected and reunited with our spirits when Christ returns, 1 Thessalonians 4. So on that day, who we truly are will be utterly revealed. A spirit that is absolutely clean of sin and glorified, united with a resurrected body, this body, brought back to life, reunited with the spirit so that we will be who we are and all we were created to be for eternity. On that day... There will be a revealing of the sons of God, an adoption that takes place ultimately as body and spirit are glorified. Now right now, we we just look like everybody else and we're falling apart like everybody else. There might be a few things that we avoid because of faithful living to the Lord, but generally speaking, we're not exempt from disease and trial and suffering and difficulty. 
But there's a day coming when who we really are will be revealed. Right now, that's all not seen because of our bodies being yet unredeemed. That day will come. The day will come when those who have trusted Christ will be revealed in body and spirit as the glorified children of God. So we are His children, but not yet in fullness until our bodies are fully glorified. Verse 24, For in this hope we were saved. In what hope? In the hope of our eternal glorification, of our becoming all that we could ever be to bring glory to God for eternity. We are redeemed. We are children of God. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us as believers, but we continue to yearn in anticipation of this glorification. And so verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. And then he, he just adds, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That is, the life of a genuine believer is marked by patient endurance. We have not yet achieved all of this. We've not gained it. We await our destiny as glorified children of God. We suffer, we sin, we fail, we prove weak, we struggle. But if our faith in God's promises concerning the future is solid, we will respond with persistent endurance through suffering. And we will fix our eyes on the glory that will meet us on the road ahead. The risen Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling Spirit of God confirm and guarantee this future and will affect it in us who believe. Verse 11 of this chapter says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's that witness of the Spirit that genuine believers sense. Sometimes certainly more than others. But as we gather with the singing church and we rejoice together in the risen Christ and we sing the songs of faith and hope, there's a fulfillment here in assembly. But it's not complete, is it? There is, as I sing, a great joy in the Lord. And there is, as I sing with it, a groaning and aching and a yearning for all that Christ intends us to be. We're not there yet. Now it may be that you hear these ideas and as you hear them you're confused. And saying, wow, that's a lot of stuff. I don't know about any of that. In fact, you might even be resistant to what I'm saying. This is a way that Christians work through suffering and they feel better about it. That's nice for them, but you really don't have time for this. You're content, honestly, you're content to go on living just like you are. I would say, if you have not come to see yourself as a sinner who deserves God's eternal judgment, if you have not come to see that Jesus died to suffer in your place to pay the cost of your law-breaking against God, if you've not come to personally trust Christ as your Savior and identify with His resurrection, I'm quite confident there will come a day on this earth 
when your heart-wrenching cry of pain will echo off the rafters of a cold, heartless, and empty universe. You can spend those days trying to deny the reality of the suffering you're going through, or you can jump on the other side of the chasm and try to say that this is just the way that it is and there's no hope or purpose. But there's going to be a day when there's an emptiness that overwhelms you. If you're not in that right now today, if you've not been there, you're going to get there. Whether in this life or the next, you will find yourself in anguish, pain with utterly no hope. Now, if God is merciful to you, and He longs to be, but if He is merciful to you, I think what He's going to do is to strip from you the goals, the dreams, the possessions, the relationships in which you are now placing false hope in order to show you the superiority of hope in His grace and glory. Perhaps the only progress that we're making here today by your being here is that when you do run headlong into that suffering, and when your aching, crying voice is echoing into nothingness, maybe on that day you will remember that there is a Savior who died who rose from the dead and secured glory for His people. The ache in your soul, the groan in this old planet, is really for that day, whether you know it or not. And if that light is right now beginning to dawn on you, there's a warmth to that account, there's a desire to see it, run after it with all your worth. Place your repentant faith in the Lord Jesus crucified and risen for the salvation of sinners. And please understand, calibrating your life to this future hope and glory is not like enjoying sunny weather on your picnic day when you thought it was going to rain. Oh, I thought it was going to rain. It didn't rain. Wonderful. You were right. This is great. It's not like that. This is a train you have to catch. And if you don't catch it, you miss it. Fail to board the train and you lose eternal glory. Rather than being transformed and glorified so that you are enabled to comprehend God's eternal, great, and beautiful splendor, you will be separated from Him in eternal judgment. I say that because the Scriptures teach it. There is a patient waiting of the train. God in His mercy has waited a long time. But there's a day when the train leaves the station. There has to be an end to this aching, groaning, dying world. That day will come. Get on the train. You'll have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Plead with God in prayer to free you now from the penalty of sin and ultimately to glorify you that you might dwell in the presence of the Lord able to see His glory for eternity. Sinless, timeless, fullness in His presence. And those who believe, those who 
have the witness of the Spirit within, that you've come to trust this message. You know this is your future. May we never lose sight of the cosmic significance of Christ's resurrection. May we continue learning to see life from the perspective of our future glorification and know that every trial pales in comparison with what is in front of us. It hurts. This is a world of pain. But there's glory ahead. And that makes all the difference. Flesh and blood, the Lord told us, will not inherit the kingdom of God. The things that are seen are temporal. Glory is eternal. So we admit, and even in some strange sense rejoice in the aching, yearning groan of our souls and of our world. As one author put it, it is with heavy feet that Christians run the race set before them. It's with heavy feet that we run. But yet, let us run. With determined perseverance as we encounter trials of many kinds in a cursed world, knowing the hope that is set before us. Christ is risen. We will be resurrected as He was. Made like Him, like Him we rise, we sang today. It's not going to be until I'm made like Him that I rise. In resurrected form. And for all eternity we will be equipped then to comprehend His glory as glorified beings. Let that truth Set everything in perspective and continue to put songs of praise in our hearts for the glory of our Savior. Let's bow in prayer. Spirit of God, take this truth and plant it deep within us to fashion us, to change us, to transform us by the truth. And I pray in behalf of anyone here who is not yet in the light. They haven't embraced this message of Christ crucified and risen. They haven't realized that it's a gift. That they must turn from sin to embrace you and your forgiving grace. I pray that you'd open their eyes today. I pray that this would be a day of salvation. That you would break through the cold heart and bring a response. For those of us who know You, Father, may we not sin by taking these things lightly and help our unbelief. How clouded are our eyes? We see the vista. We see the glory of the city ahead. But we get so enamored with the things right around us. Help us to lift our eyes and to keep them set on that eternal city and the future glory that awaits. And I pray that You would change us as the people of God And that because of what you are doing in the lives of individual believers, this church together as a community of faith, as the body of Christ, might shine as a bright light to those who are lost in darkness. Not because we have any strength over them, any greater wisdom, or that we're better people, but because we have embraced the Savior who is now our righteousness, who is our hope, and into whose likeness we will one day be transformed. Bring that day in your time, in your purposes, and continue to transform us from one 
stage of glory to the next as we journey home. It's in the name of our Savior that we lay these requests before you and ask that you would hear our cry. Amen.